The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Yeah, we're all set here at the Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University. I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show. We come every week with new content every other week. My conversation partner is John McWhorter of Columbia University. You see him there. Uh, He also writes regularly for New York Times. And this week, we're lucky to have Ian Rowe, who is CEO of Vertex Partnership Academies, which is a private school Charter school. No. Forgive me. Charter Forgive public me. charter school. Woof. Retake. All these <laughs> charter schools are public. <laughs> Brandon Johnson in Chicago needs to know about that. <laughs> Yo, seriously. We should talk about that. Uh, Ian Rose is also a, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, where he runs a shop that's uh, interested in equity and opportunity. He's the author of a book called Agency uh, with a wonderful subtitle. The four-point plan, family, religion, uh, education, and entrepreneurship for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. So welcome, Ian. Glenn and John, always an honor to be with you guys. Very stimulating. And frankly, thank you so much for the conversation that you are regularly offering to the country because it's desperately needed at the moment. You are too kind, but thank you nonetheless. So what we're here to talk about, uh, the topic du jour is Black leadership and who speaks for Black Americans. And um, Ian's right in the mix of it as he's planning an event commemorating the 60th anniversary of the famed uh, March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his uh, great address, his I Have a Dream speech an iconic event in American history, the history of the civil rights movement, the history of Black America. It's 60 years now, wow, a lifetime. Uh, It's a big deal. And uh, has been thinking a lot about, you know, how does the leadership of African Americans present itself to the country and what are the lessons that we learn from the struggles of our forebears and such like that? Not to put words in his mouth, but you're up to that kind of activity. Now, I'm sure you've got Parallel activity going on <laughs> on the non-American Enterprise Institute front. <laughs> yes. I think of the National uh, Action Network. Isn't that what uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton calls his organization? Does that still exist? I, I mean, it, it, so. it, it, no, I, oh, it still exists. It's it's his I mean, I know he does. for sure. Okay. Huh. He has many channels through which he um, asserts his power and influence. That is one of them among MSNBC and others. To be honest, actually, just a second. I haven't thought about that that organization since 2003. What is it? Who is it? Does it have office space? What does it do? (laughs) Literally, I I don't know anymore. Well, I think organizations such as National Action Network, National Urban League, um, they exist today almost at the coattails of organizations like Black Lives Matter. They're, they assert a lot of pressure on corporate CEOs to triple down on um, you know, initiatives that must be funded heavily, um, you know, equity initiatives, um, quotas in hiring. So there's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work, I think, that's being done in the name of, of equity. Uh, I'm pretty sure, John, that the National Action Network is Al Sharpton's kind of personal vehicle, uh, and it does still exist. I'm looking at the website here. Uh, and um, I don't know if you recall from the uh, funeral of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, he's the, the most recent of these cases of African-Americans killed by police. 
mm-hmm. where Sharpton spoke. The entire coordination of the event was uh, carried out through the good offices of the National Action Network. So it's his peaks, so, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's sort of there. There are these two. There's sort of an inside game and outside game. I think the inside game is sort of pressure on corporate CEOs and large institutions to fund different elements of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then the sort of outside game, the external events are the Tyree Nichols funeral and also things like the 60th anniversary, which is which is why I think the voice that you two offer is so important because there are these self-anointed leaders such as Al Sharpton and others who create these mega events essentially to suck the energy out of any discussion of what has progress been in our country? Who speaks for Black America? Because often in an event like what Al Sharpton is planning on uh, in August of this year, there aren't a lot of details, but it seems that he is going to frame America not only as this continued oppressive nation against Black people, but now against the, the transgender community, uh, the Asian community, basically that this country just has this through line of violent oppression. And when this occurs, the ability for other voices to articulate perhaps an empowering alternative to those ideas is suppressed. And I think people like the three of us have to assert that we disagree and that there are other possibilities that exist in this country, especially for the very people that Sharpton and others are saying are so doomed to oppression and victimhood. I, it's interesting, I would um, pose, I'm already kind of writing the, the future op-ed in my head. Which nations are those through the history of which violence does not run other than Switzerland? So you know, let's, let's look at the national history. Who doesn't have that kind of blood on their hands throughout? So is the United States really so exceptional there, or are we just choosing right. to ignore obvious signs of progress in order to tell an exciting story? Because that's what I'm thinking right now. Let's say that violence does run throughout our history. Does it not run throughout the history of France, Russia, China, India? Take your pick. Where is it that that's not true? You're talking about humanity. And so that's a very interesting indictment of... America alone. It, it is interesting. So Martin Luther King, who obviously, you know, led the march on Washington, you know, everyone can drape themselves in his words, uh, depending on what your objectives are. But, you know, as we've been doing research on what we are going to do in August, I came across some words that Martin Luther King said in 1962 and it was on the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation. And just listen to these words, quote, if our nation, to your point, John, right? The history of nations. If our nation had done nothing more in its whole history than to create just two documents, its contribution to civilization would be imperishable. The first of these documents is the Declaration of Independence, and the other is the Emancipation Proclamation. All tyrants, past, present, and future, are powerless to bury the truths in these declarations, no matter how extensive their legions, how vast their power, and how malignant their evil. End quote. I was blown away when I read those words from Martin Luther King. It was a hundred year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And what he was saying there is that unlike other nations, this nation had created just these two documents that established the inherent dignity of each individual. And that was, that was radical. That was a radical idea to the rest of humanity. And so that's also what we need to celebrate as we commemorate these events. And that's so when we talk about who speaks for Black America, we, we need to create, we need to create a, a level playing field of who's having these arguments. You know, I would also add the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, just to explicitly outlaw legalized segregation, 
in that way. That was a major, that was a major step. That wasn't just some minor historical detail. And just the whole mood shift, the whole socio-psychological shift in this country towards reviling racism in the way that one must, at least on the surface, and with a great many people, most of them white, also today, deep down. That's weird. We're, we're pioneers in that. It's other nations who are following us in that. And of course, you know, there was no way to know that in 1962, but I'll bet King would have felt the same way. That, yep. yeah, really, really big stuff has happened here, despite the glaring imperfections. Yeah, certainly. The, the conundrum I think we face today is that you just cited the Civil Rights Act and how radical it was in you know, deliberately eliminating this kind of behavior. But there are those who speak for Black America who say today nothing has changed, right? It's a window dressing, right? Yeah. You, you just said a bit earlier in this conversation, Ian, when we were asking about uh, the NAACP, the Urban League and whatnot, you say they take their lead from Black Lives Matter. And I think that's correct, that the, the way the winds are blowing, the energy in the, quote unquote, the movement, the streets, the authenticity and the authority of the streets uh, is not with you in terms of valorizing King 1962. They're going to tell you King 1967, Riverside Church <laughs> objecting to the Vietnam War. They're going to tell you King 1968, uh, Poor People's Campaign, or Memphis uh, Garbage Workers Strike, where he's protesting or objecting to poverty or capitalism from the left. And they're going to say all of this romantic incantation of the flowery language about the Enlightenment and the Declaration and the et cetera um, are uh, passe. Mm. Uh, they're going to they're going to invoke Malcolm X. They're going to celebrate the Black Panthers. Uh, they're going to talk about a balled up fist and they're going to valorize the movement, quote unquote, the movement that broke out at, in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, uh, which uh, dominated the domestic politics of this country for the better part of a year uh, as combating against the very same white supremacy that led to slavery and that led to our oppression under Jim Crow. So when you say who speaks for black Americans, I mean, I can tell you what, I mean, I don't know, I'll just make up a name. Robin D.G. Kelly, professor of history at UCLA and a prolific writer on the left, an advocate for black agitation and, and uh, uprising would say, and it sure as the hell ain't you. It is not me, but what have we gotten for all that? What have we gotten in the last few years of the rhetoric and action around Black Lives Matter or, or ideals of defunding the police? I mean, I was just in San Francisco a few days ago, you know, for, for a family holiday. And I mean, I don't, have you guys been to San Francisco recently? Oddly enough, yesterday. And so I, <laughs> you got me, you got me beat. I was about to say my son lives in San Francisco and I visit him often. <laughs> yesterday. That's okay, so I know what you're gonna say because me too. Yeah. I was stunned. We went down to the sort of tenderloin, you know, we were driving to tenderloin and mission open air drug dealing, people high as a kite, filth, dirt. Everywhere. And by the way, people of every race, people of every race. Yeah, it's not it's, actually, it's not just a brown thing. No, no it was quite yeah. striking. It's quite striking. And, you know, London, you know, again, talking about Black Lives Matter, what have we gotten? What have we gotten from all this? Two, three years ago, the mayor of San Francisco, let's defund the police. We got to we got to, you know, we, the, the police are terrible. It's all because of anti-black racism and oppression. Well, three years later, what have we gotten? And everyone in San Francisco, everyone throughout California was telling me, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it's bad. I mean, it was kind of bad before, but it has skyrocketed. It's like, a, it's, it's like another planet. It's scary. It's sad. It's tragic. I've never seen anything quite like it. The worst I had seen was some of the worst parts of Newark, say, 15 years ago, downtown Newark, where I thought this is just utterly broken. San Francisco now makes that look like Dubai. It, yeah, it's, it's scary. Absolutely. So, Glenn, it's frustrating, Glenn, because you're right. They'll throw all this rhetoric 
in our face. But when you look at what's actually happening in communities across the country, including the school, you know, in the communities in which I just launched our own high schools in the Bronx, people are suffering under the weight of these well-intended but still grossly misguided policies. Ian, what has the San Francisco tragedy got to do with who speaks for Black Americans in a city that I'm going to guess is 5% Black or 10% Black? Well, they, they, they elected a Black mayor, London Breed. She seems to speak that ilk, that ilk, the London Breeds, the Nicole Hannah Jones, yeah, you guys call them the, the, the three names. The three names, yeah. The Al Sharptons, that ilk. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you another quote. This one's... This one's um, uh, Booker T. Washington, a hundred years ago. Quote, there is a class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want simply because they want sympathy, and partly because it pays. End quote. There's a class, unfortunately, and it's black and white, but there's a class of people who it is in their great self-interest to continue to promote these ideas of oppression and victimhood. So when you ask what does San Francisco have to do, who speaks for black America? Well, the people speaking for Black America, the self-anointed people speaking for Black America, it pays for them to paint a picture which isn't what's happen- actually happening in San Francisco. It's a narrative of victimhood and oppression that, frankly, I think we have to fight and fight fiercely for our country. Ian, I would always say, as I always say to Glenn, that that Booker quote is not one of my favorites of his, although he gets a completely bad rap. I fully get Booker T. Washington. But with that one, I don't know if they're doing it on purpose. I don't know if they're doing it to get paid. Unfortunately, the real reason they're doing it is it's sort of harder to talk about. The reason they're doing it is because they can't see any further than that. I think it's a limitation. And partly it's a limitation because it feels good to be that person. It's They enjoy being the professional Cassandra. And it gives them a sense of life's meaning. And they also just are not the types who were given to pulling the camera back and looking at the larger picture. I hate to say that. I have the worst voice and demeanor in the world. And now, you know, (laughs) what I do for a living, nobody wants to hear that from me. But nevertheless, you know, we're all thinking of certain people. And they're not trying to make a buck. They're not, they're not hucksters. It's just that John they and I have been having this argument. I don't know. Ian, Ian, John and I have been having this argument (laughs) for decades, okay? I say these people are bad actors who know that what the hell they're doing and are bent on evil in so agree? many words. And John says they're, you know, they're just people going along to get along and they have, they're confused, they're wrong, but they, they are, they are who they are, you know? Well, yeah. not only that, and by the way, remember, Martin Luther King said, all tyrants, past, present, and future are powerless to bury the truths in these declarations. So they don't have the truth. But the reason I disagree with you, John, is because for a lot of these folks, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, in their own personal lives, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're leveraging the institutions of our country to lead quite prosperous lives. They're getting married. They're having children within marriage. They're, you know, gainfully employed. They're leveraging capitalism. So they are quite cognizant of the power of the institutions that folks like us say are so critical for the uplift of our people. And yet they constantly bash these institutions in their public lives. So it is very hard to reconcile that there isn't some deliberate attempt to kind of hide the power of what they're doing in their own lives and saying, no, 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 but that's not good enough for the rest of us. They think of themselves as lucky. They think of themselves as lucky exceptions, but they figure that it would be wrong to expect the masses of Black people to do what they did or to have access to the resources that they maybe think of themselves as having accidentally had. That's my sense 
Uh, why are you being so ge- why are you being so generous to them? This is genuinely the way I see it. But we're gonna have to get specific. Every day on Twitter, daily, there is somebody who is connected with my feed who's calling Ibram Kendi a huckster. That he's, you know, he's doing all this stuff just to make money. He's this trickster. I don't like the man. He doesn't like me. And as a result, I find him a very distasteful human being. However, I don't think that he's a huckster. I think he's just limited. He's not doing it because he's trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. It's that he really believes all of these things that he's saying. He thinks he's a lucky guy, but that most people are barred by this abstract racism that the country has been stamped with from the beginning. I don't see him as evil or sly in that way. It isn't a necessary analysis. It's just that there's only so much he can see. And to a man with a hammer, everything can become a nail. That's all. So why doesn't he why doesn't he agree to debate you in public to debate his ideas? Someone someone like him thinks of someone like me as utterly beneath contempt. Why should he bother to debate whether or not racism exists or something like that? And yeah, you know, I mean, a right. little of it might be that he knows he would lose, but I think most of it is that he figures he's got bigger fish to fry. So okay, back to the, being in that me, limited let, framework. Let me let me say this. I mean, I I think this is interesting. What does Kendi think? But I don't think it's the deepest issue. I think the deepest issue is what do the people think who make Kendi Kendi, who buy his books, who fund his uh, program, who invite him to speak, who lionize him who repeat his words as if they were from the Bible. What are those people thinking? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Black people on the whole, when they have a chance to vote, vote for the exact thing that we're saying is bad for them. They, they vote for representatives who yeah. are way on the left. They vote for people who do exactly what Al Sharpton wants them to do. And uh, they have a free will to vote for whoever they want to. So how wise are we to sit on our high horses and tell people what they should be thinking when when they have a chance to express themselves, they go in the opposite direction from what we recommend? Glenn, it, it, is, it is an enigma. I mean, I run schools in the Bronx. So I run charter schools, right? And... We serve almost exclusively low-income Black and Hispanic parents. And the power of what we have to offer is a choice. In the district where we just opened our high school, only seven, District 12, only 7% of kids that start ninth grade, four years later, graduate from high school ready for college. 7%. Meaning that 93% start ninth grade and either drop out or they do earn their high school diploma, but still can't do math or reading without remediation if they were to go to college, right? So it's a, it's a horrific situation. But here's a situation where Black parents are voting with their feet because our, we just did our lottery and we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families on the wait list because even though Democratic elected officials in New York oppose school choice, oppose charter schools, in this instance, primarily Black and Hispanic low-income folks are saying, no, 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 we want this. So I'm, I wonder sometimes if the issue is we're not figuring out the right way to communicate what's really at stake to the, the, the very people we're talking about that seem to always vote in a certain direction. But maybe we just, we collectively are not framing what the the you know, the difference between equity and equality or the the difference between, you know, um, opportunity and uh, whatever it is the left seems to think that they are proposing. Because I see see in the Bronx, in the heart of, you know, the communities I serve here, people voting very rationally in ways that are not the stereotypical, oh, they're just going to vote one way or the other. And, and I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm too optimistic, but when I see things like San Francisco or, or, or even in Chicago, I mean, you know, Chicago, <laughs> they did get rid of Lightfoot, who was, in my view, a terrible mayor. And I thought they were going to go for someone who was a big proponent of school choice. 
And instead, they went for someone who's, I think, on this sort of defund the police mantra. So it's a it's a quandary. But I think part of the issue, Glenn, is how who is the right messenger who can offer the contrast in a way that my residents of the Bronx are quite clear of what they're choosing. Uh, I'm not sure I agree, Ian. Uh, I mean, or at least I have a thought that goes in a somewhat different direction. You say who's the right messenger and what's the right message, then, you know, that's about orchestration and about communication strategy and, and all of that. And, you know, I could go on for a long time about how I wish Barack Hussein Obama and Michelle Obama were using their enormous influence in a different way. And I wish LeBron James and Oprah Winfrey, when they speak and command the cameras of millions of people, were using their enormous influence in a different way. We could go on about that. But the thing that pushes me in another direction is there's certain kind of fundamentals. Like, why is Brandon Johnson the mayor of Chicago? Because the Chicago Teachers Union is a very effective political organization. He worked for them. He was a school teacher himself, and he worked for them as a professional paid organizer. And he is a part of a movement, and that movement transcends his race. It's a labor union movement. It has issues about what the budget is going to be and what the rules are going to be and who's in charge and all the rest, and it's left. Likewise, the contempt for capitalism that drips from the Black Lives Matter spokespeople, they sneer at the idea of enterprise property, uh, ambition to acquire wealth, uh, the private market, uh, and so on, profit. Uh, they, they think, they call it racial capitalism, and uh, they are trained Marxists. That's what they said in their uh, original manifesto before they took down these pages from their website and so forth and so on, and God loved them. I'm not here trying to call them a bad name. I'm just saying what they believe in. A lot of people believe in that. People in the media believe in that. People in the foundation world believe in that. I'm talking about left-wing, socialist-oriented, anti-capitalist, anti-market ideas about economics. That gets married to it. Look at the culture war, and I'll stop. King was a Christian minister. I don't know what he would have said about transgenderism, but it would have been different than what Al Sharpton is saying. I can assure you of that. I hear okay, you. but the culture war is here. We're in the 21st century. It's not 1960 anymore. Atheism is up, not down. And new wave ways of thinking about living are everywhere. And they have assimilated to a certain degree to the civil rights movement so that when we talk about transgender rights, we're talking about human rights in the same register as when we talk about anti-discrimination and, and racial equity rights about a certain kind of movement. Unless we, so here's my conclusion. It's not about spokespeople. It's about persuading people of the fundamental ideas that distinguish the left from the right. Let's be clear about this. You cannot be a leftist and do what you want to do for black people, Ian. You know, if I I mean, go ahead, ahead, John, then I have a response. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, um, to your point, Ian, as my students say, to, to your point, based off of what you said, I think that um, there are some signs. I think that people who do what we do have to be very sensitive to the micro progressions of history. And notice that in this conversation, we're already beginning to refer to 2020, post-George Floyd, 2021 as the past. We're beginning to refer to that as an era. (laughs) That's important because that was a long time ago now. That time, Glenn, when you and I sat, you know, penned into our homes and we're talking about George Floyd and, you know, had that conversation that seems to have helped make this show take off in a new way. That was three whole years ago now. And Black Lives Matter becomes really prominent in the early teens, really in, in 2014. And if you think about it, Black Lives Matter now... You know, we talk about it. There's a kind of an iconic significance, kind of like Tea Party. But you notice that that's not really working out. And I've never had any grand animus against Black Lives Matter. And I know that there's signs and windows and things like that. But part of that is because it's becoming kind of a gesture of allegiance. But what exactly have they done? What has worked out? It seems that they fragmented into a bunch of local organizations. You'd have to characterize each one. And the question is what any of them have done, kind of like the NAACP starting about 20 years ago. And I'm not sure that they matter. I don't think that that's 
who were fighting. Like, for example, DeRay McKesson. Remember him? Yeah. Yeah. When's the last time you heard anything about him? And do you get the feeling we're going to? And he's going to write a I haven't been to Aspen lately. Um, <laughs> for the record, he is not. He is not on the slate of the next one. And I, well, he was. You know, he was. He was. That's right. And you know, so was Tanahasi Coates. But you know, here we are. And so I think we also have to know what our adversaries are. And both of you seem to think it's Sharpton for reasons that I assume. I am naive about. Well, really. well, no, no. I mean, no. The, go ahead, Ian. The, the, the ilk of Sharpton, but okay. I'll, uh, one more data point. So Pew, if you respect, you know, Pew Research data, did a pretty comprehensive study of Black people, right? Uh, and this just came out last year. And they, you know, when asked in an open-ended question to name the most important Black leader in the U.S. today, three in ten said Barack Obama, which is. Not surprising, the residue of of being president. The next named person at 8% was Kamala Harris. And again, that's residue of being vice president. And I don't think based on her accomplishment. No, no. But 62% either said there is no black leader, didn't enter anybody, or, you know, ones and twosies. But what's interesting to me about that is... Does that indicate an opening that, you know, we talk about Sharpton and Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones because that's, the, that's who the media listens to. That's who are the self-appointed. But perhaps we're uh, lamenting uh, of, of these self-appointed leaders when what we should be doing is focusing and capitalizing on who are the people who can fill this void. The kids at my schools have never heard of Nicole Hannah-Jones. They don't know DeRay McKesson. They're looking for strategies to uplift their lives, period. So who can fill that void? That feels like a huge opportunity to me right now. And Glenn, maybe, maybe the, the, the moment has passed. I don't know. But it just feels like we sometimes write off Black people and the sort of allegiance to the Democratic Party and left-leaning ideas. But maybe that's, that's the problem that we're kind of giving too much credence. I'm sorry, what is that problem? The problem that we're kind of writing off a whole group of people. To your point, you said the, you know, the, the left-wing leaders will just put out that we're still oppressed. I mean, we just had two Tennessee legislators ejected because they're black. That's just the latest proof of the systemic racism that dominates our country and the people with the biggest loud phones, the megaphones, continue to double down. And I'm just determined to say that there is an alternative voice, there's an alternative strategy, and we just can't succumb to this kind of nihilistic thinking that Black people in particular don't have the ability to think differently than what we've demonstrated in the past. Ian, how do you feel about Stacey Abrams? Well, she's certainly a gifted leader. I think she's misguided in her policies, right? I mean, this this is someone who's very articulate. My wife is actually reading a, a novel that Stacey Abrams wrote. I had no idea she's an she's author a, as well. She's a genius, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's quite talented. And, you know, I, and I wish someone like that could apply, again, what they've applied in their own lives, because there are a lot of things that Stacey Abrams has done in their own lives that she does not advocate when she's out on the, on the campaign trail. But her vision of America is one of voter oppression, subjugation, victimhood, corruption. And so I fight against her as much as I think that she's so incredibly talented, because I think the narrative she's putting forth is destructive and pernicious. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. 
Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, here, here again, I want to invoke the institutional backdrop, the, the, the institutional structures within which we operate. I'm talking about the Democratic Party. I'm talking about winning elections in Georgia and elsewhere. I'm talking about getting people out to the polls. Uh, I'm talking about keeping them fired up and ready to go. Okay. This uh, narrative about voter suppression is perfect. It melds perfectly with a victim-focused narrative of Black struggle in America. You see, it's not over. You see the Civil Rights Movement. They told you, they told you that the battle was won. They told you that the Second Reconstruction completed the work of the first. No, no, it's not over. It's never going to be over. Right. Take that away, and there is no Stacey Abrams. I don't care how brilliant she is. Okay? It's stick. She's got a shtick. She's got a cudgel. She's going to bludgeon you with it, you racist, white supremacist, institutional racist country. And who does that benefit? Why is that uh, au courant amongst quote-unquote progressives? Because they're trying to win elections by mobilizing elements of the electorate to vote their way. Now, if you don't engage that, it seems to me, you're going to miss the boat. Oh, I'm, I mean, look, sign me up. Sign me up. I mean, what's funny is that, you know, uh, like I, like I'm trying to debate everybody. I'd love to be in a room with Stacey Abrams. I'd love to be in a room with Con Ta-Nehisi. I'd love to be in a room with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Part of the reason is that these people never want to debate these ideas in public. So I'm, I'm, so, so what we have to do is then say, okay, if our beliefs are so strong, that's why I start schools in the Bronx to demonstrate that we can run schools that don't have a DEI division, right? That have high expectations and, and, and we need to multiply those efforts. 
That's why we have to do events like commemorating the 60th anniversary. That's not about America as an oppressive nation, but America as, a, 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 as, as John said, a country that obviously, like every other country, has had its faults, but is a, is a, is a milestone in human achievement. Glenn, turbocharge these ideas. I mean, why is your show, why is your and John's show so popular? What is, it, what is it that you think the country has been hearing that they're not hearing anywhere else and they're coming to you? I think there's something here that we can all capitalize on, knowing what Stacey Abrams and others are doing. Is there a way sure. to package the following message? Since 1966, the hot black message has been the balled up fist talking about what is inherently violent and racist about the nation, implying that the only way forward is some sort of revolution. That's been the hot ticket. What has that created? And so it's one thing to start making that noise in 1966 and to still be doing it in 1980. Maybe you haven't been doing it long enough. You know, Maxine Waters, for example. But here we are. We're, we're you know, practically 60 years past that now. And so what, what has it created? as opposed to affirmative action, which created a brand new burgeoning in the black middle class. And as opposed to people just towing the line and doing the boring white things and in the boring white ways. And here we are as actually in very many ways, a very successful subsection of the United States. What has Stokely Carmichael and Amiri Baraka and then this new crop of three named people and their revolutionary ideologies. What has it gained anyone? Who has it fed? What housing development for upper working class or lower middle class people has it created in a previously exclusionarily zoned neighborhood? What employment opportunities has any of that opened up? Isn't it time to get past the idea that flavor and excitement and rhythm are some kind of politics? Maybe that's too condescending. Maybe it's too historical because a normal human being lives within their own time span. Nobody's thinking about 1966. But a lot of the problem is that, and I'm not singling out Baraka because actually he and I got along very well. But if you think, and that's the thing, people young today have no reason to know who he is. But if you think about what people like that were saying and doing, they thought of themselves as prophets of something a coming, nothing a came. And here we are dealing with real life. That's something that needs to be thought about. But I'm not sure how to package that. Maybe it's just too much about the past. Well, I mean, the thing I talk about a lot is the success of the black middle class. You know, it is still the case for the last 30 years that the poverty rate amongst black married couples is single digits, right? If you look at successful black people in this country, it's not like it's some, you know, they're all LeBron James. They have generally followed the life script that people of every race have followed. The boring. The boring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Doing they, what you do. They got their education. They got married. They typically had some kind of faith commitment. I mean, we did a study a few years ago, black men making it in America. And what was in common? They'd finished the high school degree. They'd um, uh, uh, typically uh, gotten work, faith commitment, some military often. Uh, had children within marriage, and, and also this underlying sense, because it was a very interesting analysis, they had a, a self-described sense of personal agency, that they understood that there were forces arrayed against them, potentially structurally or just life in general, but they had an inner capacity to overcome those challenges. For me, that's what our schools are all about. That's what my book is all about. How do we create that as the counterbalance to this narrative of oppression. And, you know, I'm debating Richard Reeves in a few weeks, who, you know, an author of a book called Of Boys and Men. And there's a whole section in his book about black men who are suffering, who are, you know, non-marital birth, birth rates are skyrocketing, and yet never acknowledging there's actually a, a strong community of black men who are strong fathers, strong husbands. What is it that we can learn from that community 
that can then be applied. This is what Bob Woodson talks about all the time, that there is success in our communities, and yet the narrative that we, and even the anointed spokespersons, continue to focus on are the failures versus understanding how do we replicate the factors of success that do exist within our communities. Let me try something on you, um, Ian. I noticed the title, the subtitle of your book, Four Point Plan for All Children. What I want to try on you is maybe we're barking up the wrong tree here and talking about black leadership. Maybe we should just be talking about leadership. Mm. And maybe looking for a black leader or a black voice is you know, not the most productive way of spending our time and not likely to be the most effective. Um, maybe we ought to go frontally at what some of the really deep issues are. I've said capitalism. I happen to be an economist. I happen to be a neoliberal economist, if you want to put a label on me, a person who believes in markets, enterprise. I think socialism is a bad idea. A bad idea. I think you, don't let me speak for you, believe in traditional family values. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had family and religion as the first two <laughs> tenets of your four-point plan. Yes, it might, okay. it's, called, it's called free. It's not called earth. Well, let me simply <laughs> observe that not... <laughs> let me simply observe that not everybody does, okay? Not everybody does. And I'm going to mention one other thing here, which is patriotism. Yep. Because with respect, with respect to Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project, with respect to Ta-Nehisi Coates of... You know, the uh, I ain't buying the uh, American dream hype and whatnot like that. Belief in the ultimate goodness of this country and its institutions, notwithstanding the terrible difficulties that it has, ha has had to surmount. Not forgetting about slavery, but remembering about emancipation. Not forgetting about Jim Crow, but remembering about the revolution and civil rights. Knowing that the uh, the bedrock institutions on which Martin Luther King stood, he planted his flag on those institutions, yep. are still with us and nurture the hopes of our grandchildren. I mean, in other words, don't make it about race at all. Yeah, well, there's something to that. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've had the benefit over 20, 30 years of working at, you know, running schools, White House, MTV, Teach for America, Gates Foundation. Like, I've worked with every kind of kid. White kids, black kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids, poor kids, rich kids, foster care kids, homeless kids. And I've seen kids in very challenging situations, domestic violence, poverty, family breakup, all of it. And yet, as they made their decisions into young adulthood, the kinds of decisions they made essentially recreated the same disadvantage that they grew up in. But I've also seen kids in those same situations make different kinds of decisions. Decisions that actually allow them to break the cycle of disadvantage. And that's where free comes from, because these young people, as they made their decisions, as they you know, were in their early 20s, mid-20s, the first most fundamental thing they recognized, it wasn't about the family that they were from, it was about the family that they are on the pathway to form. And that's where we talk about the success sequence and young people who broke the cycle of disadvantage, in my observation, typically were on a pathway of finishing their education, work, and if they had kids, they were going to get married first. That was the first big anchor. That's my first big observation. The second big observation, and the reason why this is so important, because to your point, Glenn, this isn't about race, but my second big observation was that young people who were on the cycle of breaking, breaking the cycle of disadvantage usually had some kind of personal faith commitment. They usually had coming from some kind of religious affiliation. They had a moral code. Didn't matter if it was Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, whatever. But they were part of a community of people that lived by a moral code. And that was kind of an anchor of their decision-making. So that was my second big observation. So it was F, then R. The third observation of young people who broke the cycle of disadvantage was that they typically benefited from some kind of educational freedom for school choice. Their parents, by hook or by crook, were going to get them into a good 
charter school or going to move to neighborhood, rent an apartment so they could go to the local public school. But, but somehow that third element of education was central to young people who broke in my observation. And with those first three of family, religion, education, that usually added up to the fourth, which was this idea that they developed an entrepreneurial mindset, that they were a problem solver in their own lives. That's where free comes from. It's not race-based. It's, it's institution-based. This is how we develop young people of all races. That's why I named the book as I did. It's a four-point plan for everybody. I just use black because that seems to be the, the, um, our entry point for so many of these issues. But the concepts are universal. That if you want young people to really flourish... We have to encourage young people to understand the power of family, not the family that you're from, the family that you're going to form, the importance of a personal faith commitment, usually some kind of religious affiliation, education through some kind of freedom, and then this idea of entrepreneurship, problem solver in your own life. So I'm with you, Glenn. I use race because I I actually do believe, and this is one thing I actually do agree with Nicole Hannah-Jones on, the African-American story can be one that is inspiration for everyone in our country of triumph over adversity. It's just that I think we've forgotten the institutions that actually allowed black people to be successful, even under the most terrible conditions. I think one thing that we definitely want to understand at this point in time also, and Ian, I agree with, even though I'm not a religious person, I agree with everything you're saying, including that religion plays such a big part in people helping themselves and helping other people. And I, I think that's a great thing. We have to remember that the channel that we get our message out through, we have to get rid of a habit that I'm certainly very stuck in, but it's not going to be books. And it's not because of anything about black people and reading. It's about humanity and reading, especially in our era where there is so much to distract. I think the idea that the main way to get it across, and Ian, I'm really glad you wrote a book, but the main way (laughs) that you get it across I don't think is that medium anymore. And part of it is because in the publishing industry, and I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me because here I am, I've gotten lucky. But, you know, woke racism, nobody wanted it. If you're you're looking at the publishing industry and its biases, they want the three named people's books. You know, I'm sure that Nicole Hannah-Jones is writing a memoir and it's going to go running out of the stores. Woke racism, nobody wanted it until somebody did. And that somebody is very happy because the book has sold very well. And I'll bet a lot of the people who turned it down are now reconsidering how they felt. But it's not going to change. You know, they, they right. feel that they're supposed to be, you know, purveying this sort of three-name person message. And also just people have less time to read these days. I think the main thing is the podcast. I think yeah. the way you get to people is through their ears and doing and I don't I'm not trying to give a backhanded compliment to this podcast but if if we're going to make a real movement we have to be represented through something that people can get from their phones and and put in their ears and Coleman and and the raps that's a great idea but it's a very telegraphic form you can only, you can't get across extended ideas in a song and so I hope he keeps doing that but I think that in terms of ideas that are of extended form and I'm sure he knows this it's podcast today. I think I just want to get at, get out there that yep. we should think of that. And I'll just right. add quickly, I'll just add quickly, in addition to podcasts, convenings, important convenings. Mm. You know, we're all inspired by a man named Thomas Sowell, who back in 1980 was very frustrated. In 1980, was frustrated at the decline or actual reversal of progress within the Black community. And he thought associated with many liberal policies. This was back in 1980. So he held a conference called the Black Alternatives, more known as the Fairmont um, Conference in San Francisco, where he brought together these incredible people of all races who just had different ideas of social progress. Didn't have all the answers, but this idea of empowering alternatives to the general narrative. I had the honor of partnering with Glenn uh, Jason, uh, Jason Riley and Shelby Steele last year to hold a 40-plus year anniversary of that conference in Old Parkland, Texas. And it was amazing because we brought together some brilliant, brilliant people who had just differing views on how we can be successful. Let me tell the audience, Ian, excuse me, that if they search Old Parkland on YouTube, they'll find a wealth of video capturing the essence of that conference. It's wonderful. So if you're interested, go look for it. 
Yes, if you want to have your mind blown about empowering ideas for how people of all races can succeed, just spend a few hours watching those discussions. We're going to be holding another one in likely May of 2024. Similarly, to bring together people who think differently than what the general narrative. So in addition to podcasts, John, also let's bring people together in a sense of open idea and inquiry of how we know we, our community can make progress. Okay, you guys, we're getting to the end of the hour and I have a paradox to pose to you. And I'd like to hear your reaction to it. I'm being devilish here, so brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the two greatest Black political figures of the last century are Barack Hussein Obama and Clarence Thomas. Obama was twice elected president of this great country with a majority of votes cast for him. Thomas is the senior member of the United States Supreme Court who's been there for decades, served long and had an enormous impact on American law. I could go into their biographies, but I don't think I need to say much more than that. Obama's mother was white, his father an African immigrant, and he grew up in Hawaii and spent some time in Indonesia and made his way to the south side of Chicago, where I'm from eventually, but believe me, it took a long time for him to get there. Mm. Thomas is a, a son of the Geechee-speaking uh, Sea Islands of Georgia, of African-American heritage, as poor as you could possibly want to get and is alienated from the mainstream of American society as anyone could be and has made his way to the top of government. However, whereas Obama is lionized by every black leader that you could find who's willing to speak in public about this subject uh, as a great historic figure, and Thomas is vilified as despicable and beyond worthy of even being discussed by many of those very same people. How do you account for this paradox? Uh, you know, there was a time when Barack Obama, prior to him running, if you listen to his speeches, he talked about the importance of marriage and fatherhood and responsibility and personal accountability. And I think for a time, the, those two almost converge. I mean, he, had, he was still socialist anyway, but there was a point <laughs> at which they were not so far from each other. And then he became president. And then he succumbed, in my view, to what is more politically expedient. And certainly in his post-presidency, he has not done the things that really could drive our country forward. What explains it? Clarence Thomas has the courage to stand up for the convictions, the, the principles of this country. And unfortunately, those are under attack. They're under assault. There's no other way to put it. However, He's generally right. And he's generally right about the things that advance the interests of black people and people of all races in our country. And so I think we're at this time of national reckoning. It's a time for choosing. You know, not to steal Ronald Reagan's line, but it's a time for choosing. Are we going to choose equality of opportunity as individuals? That's equality. Or are we going to choose equity, the absence of disparities of outcomes between racial groups? There are two very different strategies in many ways, I believe, embodied by Clarence Thomas and the Barack Obama of present day. We got to choose. And I'm putting my thumb on the, the lever of equality of opportunity for individuals. We got to go down fighting for that because we know at the end of the day, that's what's best for society at large, and certainly for Black people specifically? Um, Thomas has an optics problem. And I truly hate to say that it is partly his doing. There are people who would despise him regardless. But I think that he could push the needle if there were two things he had done or maybe would do now. His silence on the court means that you don't get a piece of him. 
you don't get a sense of what is behind his views. You just get the views on the record, which often can look rather heartless, especially if you're not familiar with looking at race issues from many angles. And let's face it, you know, most people aren't. Why would they be? Most of us aren't familiar with most things. But if you're used to looking at race in one way, then when you hear some of the decisions that he makes, it looks like he's, you might think he's a terrible person when he isn't. But you don't get in the news a regular, you know, series of quotations of things that he's asked and things that he's said, where you would get an idea at least of where he was coming from. And you might be able to see that he's not crazy. He's not malevolent. He just sees things differently. That's partly his doing. And I don't believe that the reason he doesn't talk is because he's insecure about his Gullah Creole background. I think it's any number of other things, but that silence has been a problem. And then another thing I say, and I, it's a genuine question. I don't know what it is. When he put out the autobiography um, some years ago, it was rather opaque and not because of things that he couldn't have said, but for example, when he was describing how he came to be against affirmative action. Now, that must be a very interesting story. He dispatched of it all in a few pages and didn't really explain what his beef was when he was a young man, except for a few quick lines. Now, I don't know why. I don't, I, I, maybe he's a rather private person, but it means that you could read that book and what you come away with is, you know, learning that, you know, he, he had a difficult childhood and he was very poor. But once he's at, at Yale, you lose him. He, he's not willing to explain what his thought process was. And next thing you know, he's married to Jenny Thomas and smoking cigars. And it's just, it's, it's him in a way. He, he needs better PR. And I genuinely don't know why he has been that way. I don't know. But I think some of it is that. He's a cipher, unless you know him personally, as opposed to Barack Obama, where there was just better Better PR. That's what I think. Okay, thanks. Uh, I put that challenge to you both. I think I should probably respond to it myself. And my thought is, uh, Barack Obama is, was, and is a pragmatic progressive. He was the guy that was going to complete the FDR LBJ program with universal health care. He's he's a, a man of the left, a community organizer, somebody who is fighting for progress as understood by the left of the political spectrum, moderate left, pragmatic left. Clarence Thomas is a, is a principled conservative. Uh, he's not a legislator. He's not a, a executive. He's a judicial guy. But it, within that realm, he adheres to a philosophical doctrine that one identifies with what Republican presidents are looking for when they appoint people to the bench. And the, the, from my point of view, the issue here is whether or not we African-Americans are married to the left. Whether or not in the essence of our striving, we have to plant our flag in a politically ideological left of center position. I think the answer to that must be no. It must be no for patriotism. This is a great country. Let us not forget all the blessings that flow from the greatness of this republic. It matters in terms of traditional family values. There is no substitute for a mother and father raising their children. It matters in terms of opportunity. You've got to make your wealth. It's not falling from the sky and nobody's going to give it to you. Unless you live in you, San Francisco. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, had, you had better be able to produce something that the world wants. Otherwise, you're going to be in the dustbin of history. Period. Nobody's coming to save you. These fundamental principles of politics and of values and of economics should be what drives us in the calculation of our interests and the expression of our political ambition not a slavish adherence to the uh, platitudes that issue from a predictable left-of-center uh, agitation. Uh, unfortunately, we are, seem to be satisfied with the latter and not so sufficiently interested in the former. And I think that's what accounts for the difference in the reception of uh, Barack Obama and Clarence Thomas. 
So okay, I've said my piece. I don't I don't know y'all. I mean, I shouldn't just close it off like that if you got something to say. Otherwise, we can call it a day and you know, wait for the next conversation. Glenn, how do you know nobody's yes. coming? How do you know nobody's coming to save us? You always say that, but the three name people and their friends do think that we can make it so that there'll be some kind of savior if we just get white people to do the work and understand. How do you know it's not going to happen? As I say to my students in that uh, seminar on race and inequality, and I'm teaching a freshman at Brown, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the mm -hmm. opportunity that the question affords us. Because if you're right, I say to them, they're all dyed-in-the-wool progressives who are up in arms about white supremacy and about the systemic racism of the country. If you're right, then you're directing your appeal to people who you have already presumed to not be interested in your well-being, namely the white supremacists. You expect them to save you? So no, nobody's coming to save you because nobody is going to care as much about your children as you care about your children. Well, that's a fact. You know, something like that. But, it, but I'll be honest with you, John. It's a rhetorical maneuver. I know. But I just wondered what you would say. <laughs> well, rhetoric or not, and maybe this is my last thing, rhetoric or not, you know, I've just launched this school and the the... The poem that most reminds me of what we're trying to do in our school is Invictus. And the last Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Oh, my gosh. In this fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Oh, my gosh. And how does it end? How does it end? Uh... I am the master yeah. of my, my fate. fate. Captain, yeah, I am the captain. the captain of my soul. Captain of my soul. Every kid in Vertex Partnership Academy is going to be able to do what Glenn just did and recite that poem 60 years from now. <laughs> and the reason it's so important is there are no victims in our school. There are only architects of their own lives. That's what we need to teach our kids of all races to full their God-given potential. That's a good note to close on. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, John. Thank uh, you, guys. We'll see you two weeks from tonight, John. That's right. And uh, Ian, uh, always a pleasure. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Guys, amazing. Thank you.